Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, the topic is the Quran, the holy book central to the Islamic faith, and we'll be talking to Michael Burkle, who is Professor of Christian Spirituality at Earlham School of Religion. He's taught courses about Islam and the Quran at ESR and also at Earlham College in the Religion Department, where he worked starting in 1986. Importantly, he led a workshop at the 2019 Friends General Conference Gathering, which I was privileged to attend, and the workshop was called Reading the Quran as Friends. It was intriguing, enlightening, fun, and deepening to take the workshop with Michael, and I'm sure you'll be blessed by the same gift of learning, education, and connection as we welcome Michael Burkle via phone from Richmond, Indiana. Michael, what a delight it is to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you. Hello to you, Mark, and hello, listeners. It's just been three weeks since we were together on the campus of Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, for the Friends General Conference gathering. I had a great workshop that you led, the 18 or so of us in the room. I didn't see a single person's interest flagging. Have you done those kind of workshops before in the Quaker FGC setting? Not on that particular topic. That was new territory for me. Well, it should be. After all, at Earlham School of Religion, you're a professor of Christian spirituality. So the considerable knowledge that I see that you've accumulated about the Quran is not exactly in Christian spirituality. What led you to the Quran being a professor of Christian spirituality? Well, it started well over a decade ago in my religious tradition. I'm a Quaker. We have a commitment and ethical stance about truth-telling. And it was clear to me as a citizen of this society that the full truth was not being told about Islam and about Muslims. So I thought I should inform myself about this community of faith, about its adherence, about its history, about its uh, sacred scripture. And I undertook that as a kind of project in order to promote interreligious understanding. I understand that at Earlham School of Religion, which folks should know some, you can find it in Indiana if you look hard enough, At Earlham School of Religion, your specialty, even though you're a professor of Christian spirituality, that interfaith issues are large to you also in your classes that you teach? Yes, I teach some courses that have a particular focus on Islam, but I teach others that try to bring religious traditions together in conversation with one another. For example, I teach a course called An Interfaith Approach to Mysticism, I teach a course called New Frontiers in Spirituality, where we look at a variety of topics, including how religions today are meeting with one another, how they borrow from one another, how they mutually enrich one another. So it's part of what I do, yes. 
You've been at the School of Religion just three years, since 2016. Before that, you were at Earlham College in the Religion Department since 1986. And it's actually your alma mater. What led you to go to Earlham back in, I suppose, about 1974? I enrolled at the Earlham School of Religion in 1977 in order to pursue a master's degree in religious studies. I chose it in part because it is a Quaker school and I'm a Quaker and I was hoping they would be welcoming to me as someone who did not have uh, religion as uh, as my major as an undergraduate. When I got there, I learned that that's really quite common. People study a lot of things before they go on to theological studies. The workshop you were leading, as you and I know, but our listeners maybe don't know, reading the Quran as friends. So we're not Muslims, and I don't think the point of your reading is to make us become part of the Islamic faith, but somehow to appreciate, understand it. So you've already said a little bit of how that led you to be involved with the Quran, with Islamic studies. Why is it important for other people who aren't Quakers? I think it's important that we understand our neighbors while we have encounters as a nation with the wider Muslim world, and some of that is positive and some of that is not. We have a large domestic population. There are millions of Muslims living in the United States. What we hear frequently is about extremists who live far away. And what about non-extremists who live close to us? So it's important to me that we try to understand our neighbors so that we can have a a functioning civil society, so that we can find ways to appreciate one another and the give and take and the giving and receiving that is part of social exchange in a human society. So that's part of it. I think understanding other faiths can be one species of peacemaking. I chose to focus on the Quran because the Quran is at the heart of Islam. It doesn't tell you details because there's a lot more in Islam than the Quran. There are practices of prayer, of fasting, of going on pilgrimage. There's a textual tradition that's much wider than simply the scripture of the Quran. So I'm going to make a big request of you, Michael. Could you take two, three minutes and give the broad outline sketch of what the Quran is and then the history of Islam? So the idea is not to fill in all the graphs. You don't, you know, it started in the 600s and there's a billion. I'm not sure which facts you will find salient, but the broad outlines only. Wow. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, the Quran came into being or began that way around the year 610 in Arabia to a merchant named Muhammad. Over the course of the rest of his life, he lived until 622 in the Western calendar, he received revelations from the uh, spiritual world, And these constitute the verses, the chapters of the Quran. It began in the city of Mecca, which is where Muhammad and his first followers lived. They were very much perceived as a um, reforming element within society. And reform is good unless uh, you have the power and uh, you're not willing to share it. And so the early community uh, suffered for their faith. They were persecuted for their faith. After some years of persecution, Muhammad was asked by a neighboring city 
200 or so miles away, called Yathrib, now called Medina, was asked to be the leader of that city because the city was divided into factions, and he was perceived as someone who might be able to create a functioning civil society there. And so Muhammad and a good number of his followers moved to Medina. And this was an important development in the Quran itself. Up to that point, the portions of the, of the Quran that Muhammad received were, uh, well, the very early ones were, are densely poetical, uh, very moving, almost apocalyptic in their sense of urgency that people need to change their lives and to reform their morals and to commit themselves to a monotheistic view of the world. Those are the very earliest portions of the Quran. Most of those are found toward the end of the Quran because it's kind of, kind of arranged by large ones first and then more or less successively smaller surahs, they call them, chapters. Uh, that was a common way of arranging books back then. If you look at the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, you have the big ones first and then they get progressively smaller. At any rate, those early surahs, those early chapters, are found at the end of the Quran as it is now organized. Then the revelations began to reflect, a good number of them, to reflect stories uh, or messages that featured biblical characters that would be known from the Hebrew scriptures or the, or the Christian Bible. And that was a kind of second movement when there was a move to Medina, Muhammad was moving from being a prophet of a small persecuted community to being the leader of a city. And so what he needed guidance on was how to organize human society so that it can flourish in a just way. So the more legal dimensions of the Quran, specific guidance about practical matters in life, whether that be marriage, whether that be inheritance, whether that be, I suppose we could say, crimes, which are, you know, defined by a society. Uh, how do you run a city, a large human community? So that's how the Quran comes together over the space of how many years? Well, 610 to 622, so 23 years. And you said Muhammad died in 22? Yes, 622. Mm -hmm. So he got his revelations and within the year he died? Yes. Mm -hmm. This is from a place in Saudi Arabia? Yes, what today would be called Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. And it spread, and it moved really quickly, kind of amazingly quickly, and spread pretty widely. Right now, I think maybe Christians outnumber Muslims in the world, but maybe not. I what are the numbers? How large are the relative subscribers to these different populations? There are different estimations out there. Most of the ones I've seen suggest that Christians are in greater numbers currently than Muslims, but Muslims are catching up. Certainly well over a billion Muslims, probably less than two in the world, somewhere between maybe 1.3, 1.6. That's a lot of people. The workshop that you led, again, reading the Quran as friends, and so friends, again, a word for Quakers, a religious society friends, official name. 
you were encouraging us to find some appreciation, understanding, connection with these, our neighbors. So you mentioned in the development of the Quran that kind of the second portion of the surahs that came out had a lot of reference to some of the people that we know from the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. Yes. Jesus and Abraham, Moses. I mean, pick out one or two of your favorites, if you wish, and I love to see the comparison of the stories of what was noticed and what was captured, what was stated in the two different or three different milieu. Right. I'll begin generally and then I'll move specifically. One of the important general differences is that in the Quran, as Muslim friends and teachers have told me, the Quran is meant to address the reader right at that moment and to have a focused message. I would contrast that, say, with the stories in the book of Genesis, which certainly do have a story is told and retold because it has meaning. So I don't mean to suggest that it doesn't have meaning for the reader, and certainly that was its intention as well. But the purposes are are manifold. In the book of Genesis, you're trying to describe how did the world come into being. I'm just thinking of the very earliest chapters. Why don't people like snakes? Why is it the big brothers pick on their little brothers, Cain and Abel? Why is it that people speak different languages and don't understand each other? You know, the Tower of Babel. It's trying to tell the story of the human race, and then beginning with Abraham, it's trying to tell the story of a particular people. That's not so much the purpose of the Quran. The Quran is not trying to explain why it is that siblings don't get along all the time, or it's not trying to explain why there's a variety of languages in the world. It's not trying to tell the story of a community that has a single progenitor like Abraham, because part of the message of Islam was to suggest that one problem with society in Arabia at that time was that it was so tribal and the tribes weren't always getting along. Part of Muhammad's message was, can we have a deeper loyalty to something bigger, something that transcends tribal loyalties? And so that history, that notion of peoplehood differs in Islam from what you find, for example, in Judaism. And so those elements of the story aren't there. They're not highlighted. Also, in the telling of the story in the Quran, it often feels very streamlined in other ways. You read the story of Joseph, and it mentions that he had brothers, but it doesn't say what their names were. They are not attributed an important role of the story, the way Reuben is, or Simeon is, or Benjamin is. They're not recognized by name in the story. It feels very streamlined. So that's one thing I would say. Another thing I would say is that there are places where the story differs. There is material that doesn't appear in the biblical text itself. Here I'll pick Abraham as an example. Abraham is kind of portrayed as a youthful spiritual seeker. He is looking for meaning. He's looking for an entity that is worthy of worship. And like others in his society, in his culture, he considers the sun, he considers the stars, because there are people that worship them. And he says, well, this doesn't seem to work. There were people who fashioned idols, and he challenges the idolatry of his day. There's even a story that's 
almost kind of amusing where he smashes all the idols but one and the people come in the next day and said, who did this? And I said, well, that one's left. He must have done it. And people say, <laughs> idols can't move. They can't do anything. And he says, well, why did you worship him then? You know, why would you do that? They can't do anything. They can't protect themselves. They can't protect you from something else. And so there's that element of the story. And then uh, some of his fellow citizens get unhappy with him and they cast him into a fire, you know, kind of like we hear in the book of Daniel. And of course, he is saved. Now, what's interesting to me is that while these stories about Abraham are not found in the Bible, they are found in post-biblical Jewish texts. If you read the book of Jubilees or Genesis Rabbah, if you read Philo, Josephus, you read early Midrash, you read some of the Targums, I hope I'm not dropping too many technical names there, but (laughs) early Jewish literature that is post-biblical, you will find, oh, there's Abraham, the idol smasher. There's Abraham who gets tossed into a fire and rescued. And so when you read the text, if all you know is the book of Genesis, you may say, oh, this feels quite different. But then if you are acquainted with some of the early Jewish literature, post-biblical Jewish literature, then you realize, oh, this is closer than we thought. And I remember talking to a a Muslim friend of mine about that, who's a scholar in Islamic studies, and I said, that's pretty interesting. And I said, although I'm cautious to bring that up because I know that Muslims believe that the Quran was delivered, if you will, to Muhammad, And so to suggest that these parallels may seem to suggest that these are borrowings and that your revealed text was not so divine in its origin. And my Muslim friend said, I don't have a problem with that at all. He said, who do you think Muhammad was talking to when he was a merchant running caravans through the desert? He was talking to Jews. He was talking to Christians. And so the Quran speaks to him in a language and a set of stories that he is familiar with. So that's one of the things that delights me about reading the Quran is to see how it not only is the foundation of the religious life of a Muslim, but also to see how it reflects a kind of interfaith conversation that was happening in the 7th century. Now, it could get kind of polemical back then, as it does frequently today. You don't have to go very far on the Internet to find that. But also there were positive exchanges, mutually enriching exchanges. And so that's one example for me of how I find it not just interesting, but even edifying how these biblical characters are portrayed within the confines of the Quran. I've got a couple things to respond, Michael, but first I want to remind our listeners that they are tuned in to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website with more than 14 years of our programs for free listening and download. All kinds of links to our guests. So like when you want to find where Michael Burkle is, what's his curriculum vitae and so on, you can come via NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You'll find links to Earlham School of Religion, where he's been teaching since 2016. He was on the staff of the Religion Department of Earlham College, the under 
graduate since 1986. He's at Earlham School of Religion. He's a professor of Christian spirituality, which maybe makes it surprising that we're talking about the Quran and what he's learned in terms of sharing that with the wider community as well. Also on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website, you'll find a place to post comments on these programs. Please let us know. You can rate them and give us your feedback. We love hearing from you. There's also a donate button. It's full-time work, and the only means of support is you, the listener, that you value and want to see it continue. It's not government. It's not corporations that are subsidizing these programs. So please support us, but even more so support the local community radio stations that carry these programs. There's wonderful community radio all across this country giving local flair and an alternative to the media that currently some six corporations own 90% of the media in the United States. Think of the stranglehold those limited six owners can have on the information and music that comes to you and support the alternative. Local community radio is rich, varied, and so deserving of your contributions. Start by helping them. And again, we're here with Michael Burkle. We'll have links to him on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website, including to information about his book, Quran in Conversation, which I'll have you say a little bit more about in just a moment, Michael. But first, a couple things I wanted to say about what you were just sharing. You mentioned the stories about Abraham that were post-biblical, and by that you mean somewhere after uh, certainly zero and maybe 300. Yeah, or maybe beginning about the year 200 before the Common Era. Uh-huh, yes. So the point being that it predates the 600s when the Quran was delivered to Muhammad. Right. right. So the other thing that I guess maybe wasn't completely clear to me, my question was what it was like actually in Mecca at that time, I think it was completely polytheistic around there. That the central place in Mecca wasn't that. Didn't they have idols to all kinds of gods? Yes, Mecca was in fact a center for pilgrimage. There were, at least the way it's remembered in the early Islamic history, there were hundreds of idols within the uh, the shrine that nowadays is actually the the center of Muslim attention, the Kaaba, this cube in the middle of the of the desert that toward which more than a billion Muslims direct their prayers every day. So it's remembered largely as a polytheistic society, although some recent scholars are exploring the possibility of some kind of exchange that was happening with Jews and Christians as well, because why would people remember and retell a story about Adam or Abraham or Mary or Jesus if those names didn't mean something to them? And so current scholarship, and like everything else in the scholarly world, it's everything is contested, of course. But there has been a, a rising interest in, exp- in considering the possibility of more Jewish and Christian presence than was earlier regarded. But certainly it was a center of polytheistic worship of the uh, traditional gods of Arabian tribes at that time. And so Muhammad was actually pissing some people off by advocating that it all be just about one God because everybody's coming there to, they're coming to Nevada and saying Nevada should get rid of gambling would probably be an unhappy suggestion for many people, right? Oh, yes. It was a threat to the pocketbook, certainly, yes. 
And Muhammad had other reforms <laughs> that were not enthusiastically embraced by everyone. For example, a prohibition of consumption of alcohol or a prohibition of gambling, pastimes that are deeply embedded in some societies. And so for a variety of reasons, Muhammad's message was not regarded as uh, very enticing to some people in the early days probably got the same reaction if you took those proposals to Las Vegas, right? That's an interesting comparison. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting comparison. Both of them cities in the desert. One of the things that intrigued me about this, again, you haven't pursued a specific course of study under some other expert on the Quran, but I understand that you learned, and probably with some help, but you learned the Quranic Arabic Say a little bit about that. Why did you bother to learn that? I understand when the Quran is recited, it's always recited in Arabic, even if you're doing this in the Philippines where Tagalog is your language or wherever it is. So how accessible is this language if you know Arabic in current day in the Middle East somewhere? Is this a really hard language to understand? And how well do you actually know it, Michael Burkle? <laughs> well... I would have to say that I had a uh, a patient but fairly incompetent teacher, which is to say I taught myself. I had done that. Well, when you teach religion, if you like languages, there's always a good excuse to learn a new one. But I, I knew from uh, my own experience that reading something in the original is always takes you further in, into the realm of that text than reading it in translation. And I knew that Arabic was so important for Muslims that I sat down with some grammars and taught myself some Arabic. Now, my Arabic has a, a, a fierce Midwestern accent, probably, but my point in learning wasn't to uh, order food in a, in a Moroccan restaurant, like much fun as that might be, but my point in, in learning Arabic was to read the Quran. So I focused on the grammatical structures and the vocabulary that shape the Arabic of the Quran. You asked, how is that different from modern Arabic? Well, that's a a rich and complicated question. There is a kind of agreed upon, more or less modern standard Arabic, which is often the language of media in Arabic-speaking parts of the world. And people learn that, but they also spend much of their day speaking the, the local dialect, which can be quite different. Someone from Tunisia might find it quite challenging to understand someone from Egypt or Iraq or the Gulf just the dialects are rich and varied. In some ways, Arabic is one language with many dialects. In other ways, you might look at it as a whole family of more or less languages because some, sometimes they're not mutually comprehensible, a dialect from Iraq and a dialect from Algeria, for example. So that's a little bit about that language. How well do I know it? I know it well enough to read the Quran with my trusty dictionary. What did it open up for me? Well, a text is always richer in its original language. The Book of Lamentations is sadder in Hebrew. It just sounds sadder and is sadder. It's a sad book in English, but it's, it's more so. For me, certain of the Psalms are much more vibrant in the original language. That, that would be Hebrew. The Gospels come alive for me more fully when I read them in Greek. And so reading the Quran in the original, one advantage is that you can hear the echoes of other passages more clearly because a word may be translated in multiple ways. And when you realize that 
it's in fact the same word being translated different ways, you connect the dots between passages. Also, the um, poetic quality of many of the suras is just much deeper, much more evocative, much more compelling. One of the things that I wondered about, you know, putting myself in your shoes, did you have any resistance or doubts or antipathies or such things to studying this non-Christian scripture? What feelings did you have going into it? Was it all just wild anticipation and, oh, goody, a new piece of candy to chew on? Or were there other more complicated emotions with it? Well, it is itself a varied text, Uh, Some parts of it are moving, I think, perhaps to practically anyone. Other parts are much more moving if you're an insider, which I am not. I mean, I feel the same way about my own scripture, about the Bible. Some parts of it I will turn to for edification. Other parts I mm, continue to work with, let's put it that way. And other parts I just frankly struggle with. That's why, for me, it's valuable to read a text with people for whom that text is is focal in their lives, for whom that text is central. Because I may be reading a passage that is a problem for me, and I would say, well, you know, if this were my scripture, I would say, oh, well, this is really kind of overshadowed by these other compelling purposes of the text. But as an outsider, I don't feel the freedom to do that. That's why reading with a Muslim, the text becomes more alive for me. I think there's this interesting dynamic about scriptures. On the one hand, they give life to a community. You know, they increase the vitality of that community. On the other hand, they also come alive within that community. The community, in return, gives an interpretive vitality to the text. And so there's a very interesting, I guess I would say, dynamic going on there. And this could be a way of describing, at least introducing the project that you referred to earlier, where I visited with Muslim religious leaders and scholars from pretty much from coast to coast in the United States. And I met with them and asked them simply one question. Would they be willing to talk to me about a passage from the Quran that was particularly important or meaningful to them? As a result, I had a series of 25 or so conversations with Muslims in which their faith came alive for me as I listened to them in what I hoped was a generous and welcoming way. They spoke quite personally about the meaning of various passages in the Quran for them. And that came out as a book, Quran in Conversation. What year did that come out? Where can we get it? It came out in, I believe, 2014 now, so almost five years. And where can you get it? It was published by Baylor University Press, so you could go to their website and find it. You could go to your megastore on the Internet of your choice and find it. You might find it in your local library (laughs) or borrow it from a friend. So it's been out there, and it's still in print. You'll find a link to that book on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website, folks. I think I need to step back. You've been Quaker since, I think, sometime in college. My next question is predicated on understanding who you are, specifically in relation to Quaker and or Christianity. Who's Michael Burkle? How did you get connected to Quakers? Well, I came to a position of pacifism 
on my own in high school. This was in a small town in the Appalachian region of Ohio. It was a fairly lonely conclusion to come to, but I did. And I said, well, there must be some other people like me out there. And so I did some reading and, and heard about this group called the Quakers, but there weren't any within, uh, within walking distance of my house. When it came time to look for colleges, I visited a number of schools. At that time, this was in the 1970s, there was a federal loan program for college students for people from uh, modest means, like my family. But there was one catch. This loan program came into being during the McCarthy era, I was told, and they wanted to make sure that they weren't giving loans for anyone who might want to uh, overthrow the country. And so, you know, this was the communist uh, Red Scare. And so to get a loan from the government, you had to swear to defend the country, which, of course, we all know that any Maoist would do that to get a college. To, <laughs> well, anyway, so much for that. So much for whatever whatever the practical thinking behind that was. Well, I was not convinced that I could do that, given how that phrase, defending a country, was typically understood. I think there are things that I was and still am willing to die for, but there wasn't something I was willing to kill for. And that was important to me. And as I visited various colleges and universities, I would explain this to the financial aid officer, and they would say, get over it, kid. Or it's just symbolic. Or do you really want to go to college? And then through a friend of a friend, I heard of uh, Wilmington College, which was a Quaker college in Ohio, where I, not so far from where I was living. And I visited there, and I liked it, and I had a wonderful experience. And then I said, okay, here comes the hard talk with the financial aid officer. And he said, oh, we're a Quaker college. We have a loan program set up just for people like you. And if I'd had those words when I was 17, which I didn't, I would have said, well, I've always thought that economics should be a subcategory of the study of ethics. But at least that <laughs> impulse was there. Sounds like you've given a class on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I haven't, but it wouldn't be a bad idea. And so uh, I said, well, I should uh, learn something about these Quakers are enabling me to go to college. And so I started hanging out with those folks and still am. So understanding how you got there, I didn't hear too much talk about Christian spirituality, although that's what Michael Burkle is a professor of at Earlham School of Religion. So where is Christian spirituality in either who you were, who you became, what you've been living out and teaching? Mm -hmm. Because that seems relevant to dealing with the Quran. Well, my doctorate's in the history of Christianity. And so nobody spends that much trouble studying something they don't find something of value in. I identify myself as a Christian. It's a wide enough group historically that there's space for someone like me in it. So I happily identify as a member of that larger family. I think the dimension of the study of religion that has always appealed to me the most has been spirituality. When I had to do a dissertation, I did it on Greek monks in the 5th century and uh, their understanding of the inward life and the inner dynamics of the soul, I guess you'd say. And so I've always had a long interest in, or for, for a good number of decades, I've had a deep interest in spiritual wisdom, both how it comes alive today and what the gifts of the ancestors are to us. 
Does that begin to answer your question? Yes, it does. And so then I can give you the follow-up question, because as you encountered the Quran, you came at it with certain expectations, understandings. Did learning the Quran, did it change your prejudices or opinions that you already had, or has it in any way changed the way in which you see Christianity? Well, of course, it changed my understanding of Muslims. I don't know what prejudices I had. It was largely ignorance. And so uh, there was just a gap to be filled. And I appreciate the spiritual gifts from Islam. I think our wider North American culture has done that in some ways through the popularity of uh, poets like Rumi, who are steeped in Muslim spirituality. Did it change the way I see Christianity? Well, sometimes people find this to be their experience when they travel to another land. They try to be receptive and be a good guest and to immerse themselves in another culture. And what they find themselves learning the most about is their own. And that may not even happen until they come home. Islam talks a great deal about what it means to be a prophet. That's at the very core of their faith. It has invited me to think again about the role of prophecy and what that has meant in my own tradition. Another place where there has been some rediscovery is that, you know, Christianity talks about mercy. It talks about grace, which is, I think, a species of mercy. That is to say, I think, theologically, they parse somewhat differently with significant overlap. The Quran talks about mercy all the time. I had these conversations with 25 Muslims that turned into that book, Quran and Conversation, and I think the theme of mercy came up in every conversation. And so it invited me to reconsider the role of mercy and what does that look like and how was that lived out in my own community of faith. So that's another place where I think I have felt enriched as a Christian by my encounter with Islam. I think I know the answer to this following question, but I'm kind of curious, what reaction did you get from Muslims as you were asking about their faith? Sometimes it, an outsider can feel intrusive or just excessively ignorant, and sometimes it's hard to put up with ignorance. Mm -hmm. But what kind of reaction did you get from the Muslims themselves, and maybe the 25 people you talked to, or maybe just the individual Muslim on the street? Were they positive, negative, welcoming? How did that go? Well, I would say, I'll back up a little bit and say, this book began with a conversation with Muslims. I had begun teaching myself about Islam, and then I consulted with some real-life Muslim scholars to make sure I knew enough to do this, and they said yes, and so I began teaching some courses related to Islam. I don't have a degree in Islamic studies, but one person said, uh, looked at my shelf and said, if you've read all those books and understood them, you've done at least a master's. Now you've got to write your dissertation. And maybe that's what Quran conversation was. Uh, it wasn't intentionally that. But I was teaching Islam. This is when I was still at the college, and we had some Muslim students, and some would take a class with me because they knew I respected their faith. And one day two students came to me and said, we think you should write something about Islam. And I said, well, that's really very kind of you and generous of you, but I'm not a trained scholar. And then they looked at my bookshelf and said, you've read all these books? What do you mean you're not a scholar? I says, well, you know, there's this notion we have in the West about what a doctorate entails. I haven't jumped through all those hoops. And then they said something that stayed with me. They said, but you explain us well, and we need outsiders who can do that because 
we don't always seem to be good at doing that. When you're inside something, sometimes it's hard to imagine what it looks like to an outsider. And so they said, we need outsiders to explain us, and you do that well. So think about that. Well, I thanked them, and I thought about it, and I said, Michael, you're still not a trained scholar of Islam. But then I thought further and said, well, but you can go meet the people who are. And so, in a way, this book, this project began with this nudge from some some Muslim students. Before I began this project, I went to meet with some leaders at the Islamic Society of North America, which is a large umbrella organization. It doesn't speak for all Muslims, but it does support a good many of them. And I said to the executive director, I would like to do this project, but I want to give you veto power. I won't pursue it if you don't want me to do this. And he was completely supportive. He said, how can I help? Have you thought of people you want to interview? Do you have contact information for them? I, we probably have their email addresses. And so I, was, I felt very supported by the people in, in, in that organization. So I undertook it with the support of Muslims, and I have received a lot of appreciative emails, including from people I have not met from other countries, were grateful that someone undertook that writing project in a way to show a kind of snapshot of Islam in North America at this moment in history, focused on how they interact interpretively with their sacred text. So the reactions have been positive. I've been in a setting of religious scholars, annual gathering called the American Academy of Religion, and some Muslim scholars came up to me and that, that I had not met before and thanked me for that labor. This is a wild possibility, but I don't suppose it was Radwan Saleh who you spoke with with respect to the Islamic Society of North America. I happen to have interviewed him a number of years ago. and No, it was, it was someone else at the time who has since moved on to other things. Well, I have a few more things I'd like to talk to you about, Michael. I asked you about reaction of Muslims to your classes, your teaching, your pursuing of this, these studies in Quran. But what has been the reaction of your students? To some degree, I realize it will be self-selecting. They're signing up for this class on the Quran, so I assume they're maybe not violently phobic, but... If they're Christian of background, they probably are coming in at least with some prejudices and attitudes. So have you had anybody who reacted particularly negatively, like you betrayer of Christianity or whatever? No, none at all. And that's at least in part due to the kind of student we have at the Irwin School of Religion. People come here by and large with a big heart and with ears that are willing to hear to listen, whose meaning of life is articulated in a different way. We have quite a, uh, we don't have any Muslim students here, uh, like I did when I was at the college. Uh, you know, I've had Muslim students who would be biology majors or biochem majors or something. But at ESR, we have students who range pretty widely on the theological map. Quite a number of them would identify as Christian, but some do not. And so that kind of openness that there already is here to having a kind of dialogue, I think, shapes the kind of experience we have in class. One of the things that I haven't asked you about, and it seems absolutely vital, because so many people, I think, who I might describe as being on the Christian right, have a strong phobia about Islam. It's easy enough if you narrowly focus to say, well, the people who took down the Twin Towers 
we're Muslim, and so we better be frightened. And right. Because their numbers are growing, and they're going to outnumber the Christians, and they're going to take over. And I think Islam has a long history of being a very successfully growing and then governmentally dominating entity. So with that in mind, many people can easily latch on to the idea that, you know, the Quran is advocating violence. How much does the the scripture itself advocate violence as compared to something like Jewish scriptures, Christian scriptures? And I realize there's a separate question then, how does it get interpreted in the living out of a society? Sure. If you were to tally up violence condoning verses, the Bible would have many more than the Quran. Now, that may not be completely fair because the Bible's a much longer text, but you find ideals of peaceful living in both scriptures. You also find a religious sanctioning of violence under certain circumstances. And those have been interpreted in different ways across the centuries in both communities and in other religious communities. But I'll give you an example. The um, verse that comes up again and again is in the ninth surah, the fifth chapter. This is the one about slay the infidels wherever you find them. I met with a very warm and friendly Muslim leader who chose to speak to me about that verse. So he pointed to this verse, Surah 9, Chapter 5, often interpreted wrongly, he would say, as slay the infidels wherever you find them. This is a verse that's used by extremist Muslims to justify their terrorist actions. And he utterly rejects that. Not in any way because he's a sort of westernized liberal. He is a very traditional and fairly conservative Muslim. He's trying to understand what this text means so that he can live in accordance with it. He's not trying to reinterpret it to make Islam palatable to the West. That's not his agenda. So he looks at this verse and he says, it says, you can kill the polytheists. And he says, that's the word there that sometimes is translated as infidels. It refers to polytheists among these tribes of 7th century Arabia who were threatening the Muslim community, the small persecuted Muslim community, and in fact had committed war crimes against them. You can't use that to defend terrorist acts, particularly not against Christians or Jews, because the Christians and Jews are never described that way in the Quran. They are the people of the book, or they are the children of Israel, is one way that is binary Israel, is a way of describing the Jews in the Quran. And so he is trying to wrestle this verse back from the extremists. It's an intra-Muslim debate. And so that's one example of how there are texts that have and were intended to condone or sanction a particular kind of violence at a particular moment. And he says those aren't applicable anymore. He says when you have verses that seem to stand in contrast with other verses in the Quran, he says you don't go with the wild exception. You interpret the Quran in light of the Quran. You interpret the few in light of the many. And what is the many in the Quran? Well, there are 114 surahs or chapters of the Quran, and 113 of them begin in the name of God who is merciful and compassionate. In other words, divine mercy 
is at the center of the understanding of a Muslim life. And so if you find a verse that seems to contrast or contradict that, you do not take that exceptional verse and make it the core of your ethical existence. Rather, you interpret that exception in light of the overriding voice of the Quran, which is about mercy. You know, I think there's a parallel in the Christian scriptures. There are some people who advocate support war who look at the Christian scriptures, and most of it seems to be love your enemy and turn the other cheek, that kind of talk. But there is that verse that says some people think, I bring peace, I bring a sword. So that might be one of those few amongst the many and how you interpret that. And I heard an interpretation of that that the Mennonites provide that I think makes it clear how the truth could be spoken through that statement and it's not about actually killing people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm aware of that interpretive school as well, and, and it makes sense to me. If you want a, uh, an example, a parallel in a way from Judaism, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that says if you have a disobedient and rebellious son, take him out to the gates of the cities and stone him to death. And I was looking up how that passage gets interpreted within Christianity. And most of the time, I'm thinking of, you know, I looked at Luther, Calvin, Augustine, you know, the great biblical interpreters across the ages. Most of the time, they more or less ignore it. Or if they pay attention to it at all, they say, oh, well, okay, that's the Old Testament. We got the New Testament, you know, so that gets us off the hook. We live by grace and not by the law. Now, if you're a Jew, you can't do that because it's the Torah, and the Torah is the heart of your revealed message from God. And so if you look at what rabbis have done starting 2,000 years ago nearly, in terms of records that we have, they, they say, okay, this verse is in the Torah, therefore it's the divine will, but how do we understand it? And they basically interpret it in such a way that attenuates it to such a point that it's completely undoable. You know, they say, okay, it says a son. Well, a son at what point? You know, and the rabbis are arguing back and forth and say, it's, well, it's when he's between 12 and 12 and one quarter. So you have a three-month window there. And we'll all agree that that's when they're at their worst. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's in the running. But they refine it in such a way that the law can, practically speaking, never be carried out. And that's what they do with the Torah. So all of us that have scriptures that are regarded in some way authoritative and that have an ethical complexity to them, we all have to decide at some point in our different communities what is the heart of it and what serves as the foundation from which to engage the more complex passages. And Islam does that. That's my point. This is not to say that Islam has always lived up to its ideals, just as I would say Christianity has not. That doesn't mean that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. It may mean that we have high ideals that are not easily attained. Well, you know, I think I could keep you on the phone for a long time, Michael, but (laughs) I'm pretty sure that Professor Burkle has other preparation and work to be gotten done as well. So I'm wondering, Michael, if you'd be willing to pick a verse just to delight our ears, to enrich Mm -hmm. our ears, our understanding, and and that's with the belief that most of the listeners to the Spirit in Action program probably have never read the Quran. And if you could just share a verse, maybe read it through twice, so that we could have a chance to sit with it and hear it maybe in our hearts a bit. Could you pick out something like that? Certainly. I'm going to try this one. This is from the 24th surah. It's the 35th ayah or verse. What I like about it is that it's 
densely poetic. It is filled with images. It doesn't exactly tell you what they mean, but that invites you into a process of reflection and meaning-making. What I like about this brief passage is that it invites you to think, what is this light? And if this light is in a glass, what is that glass? And what is this olive tree that's not from the east or the west? And what does it mean to be guided to this light? And here is the passage. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. A likeness of this light is as a niche in a lamp. And the lamp is in a glass. And the glass is, as it were, a brilliant star, kindled from a blessed olive tree, neither of the east nor of the west. Its oil is almost aglow, even though no fire had touched it. Light upon light, God guides whomever God wills to this light. And again, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. A likeness of this light is as a niche in a lamp. The lamp is in a glass, and the glass is, as it were, a brilliant star kindled from a blessed olive tree, neither of the east nor of the west. Its oil is almost aglow, even though no fire had touched it. Light upon light, God guides whomever God wills to this light. That is so beautiful. I'm so thankful that you chose to share that, Michael Burkle, for today's Spirit in Action. Folks, we've been speaking with Michael Burkle. I took a workshop with him at the Friends General Conference gathering, reading the Quran as friends. He's the author of a book, Quran in Conversation, 25 Conversations with 25 Islamic Scholars and Religious Leaders. He is on the staff at Earlham School of Religion since 2016. He was a professor in the religion Department at Earlham College since 1986. I'll have links on northernspiritradio.org to his Quaker Speak video. It's one of the most popular of all times of the very popular Quaker Speak video series by John Watts. You'll find all those links on northernspiritradio.org. I had such a wonderful time in the workshop with you, Michael, and I've had a great time today. And I thank you for your peace work, for your spiritual depth work, and for joining us for Spirit in action. And I want to thank you, Mark, for the good work that you are doing in this program, that you go out and find people to talk to and share the treasures that you come upon and enrich the lives of your listeners with. So thank you very much. It's totally my pleasure. Again, Michael Burko, follow the links on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh